0: My guest today is Professor Matthew Jackson, who is Professor of Economics at Stanford University and an external faculty member of the Santa Fe Institute, and is president of the Game Theory Society. Professor Jackson's research interests include game theory and the study of social and economic networks, on which he has published many articles and, and books, uh, two books, The Human Network and Social and Economic Networks. Welcome, Matt.
1: Thank you, Gil. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your older papers entitled Networks of Military Alliances, Wars, and International Trade. You say we investigate the role of networks of alliances in preventing multilateral interstate wars. Um, You say you first show that in the absence of international trade, no network alliances is peaceful and stable. Uh and then you also show that international trade induces peaceful and stable networks. Now this makes a lot of intuitive sense. Do we have um so what what's the data that we're using to, to reach these conclusions?
1: Yeah, so um, you know, the 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 work covers two parts. One is sort of the, the basic theory behind what you just described, uh why we need trade and other things to stabilize um conflict and eliminate it. And and the other is um, a set of, of analyses of, of data. And most of the data that's a, available on conflict in the world comes is what's known as the correlates of war data set. And yeah. it's a data set that's been collected for the past, I guess, almost you know, a little more than 200 years now. Um, it, it So it covers from the Napoleonic Wars through the present, and it covers all kinds of different conflicts. So it can be you know major wars like the second world war or it could be something small like uh a, a, a dif- dispute over fishing rights where there's uh you know some um naval involvement and yes. and so it's it it covers a whole series of different uh types of conflict
0: so so um because we're looking at wars and um and conflicts against trade. Uh can we can we really show causality there with that, that type of data? Yeah,
1: no, so so I think you know what what the the basic data shows and, and what you're pointing out is it's hard to get causal inference out of this. So what you see is you see a lot of conflict just repeated over and over and over from eighteen fifteen through about nineteen fifty. And yeah. then you see um a, a a great decrease in it. So if you look at the the amount of major conflicts in the world pre1950 to post 1950 it's dropped by about a factor of 10 sure. and you know this isn't a situation where we can we have like a controlled experiment where we have one world where we have trade and another world where we don't have trade and then we compare them so we can't do a controlled experiment to tell you know whether that's the causal reason for this but what we can do is is take a very close look at when countries begin to trade and then when there are conflicts and how that correlates with who has what kind of military power, what kind of trade alliances are there, how much trade is going on, how many trade partners people have, when uh, conflicts occur and so forth. And so a really careful statistical analysis can at least show us that that having a lot of trade predicts that you're going to have a more peaceful world. But we can't be sure that that's the reason for it.
0: So I guess one way, uh, uh, I don't know if it's in the paper, Matt. So one way is to perhaps look at uh, when wars happen, uh, what the level of trade was between the countries, right? Is that something that we could do? Yeah,
1: exactly. So so there's sort of two main things that that predict whether countries go to war. Um, one is how much trade they have together. Yeah. And, and another is whether or not they have a lot of trade partners. So if I trade with a lot of countries, um, I tend not to go to war much at all. And yeah. and then there's a second thing. If, if you and I trade together, we tend not to go to war. And the more we trade, the less likely we are to go to war. So for instance, if in in the paper, what we find is if we, if we look at two countries and if you increase the amount that they trade by one standard deviation, sort of you know one average amount in the data, you get a 17 times decrease in the chances that they're going to be at war with each other. So it's it's a pretty dramatic effect. Like, a, you know, a bump up in trade really makes a huge difference in in the drop in conflict. And, you know, it mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. If if we're trading together, you know, you, the idea of going to war just doesn't make any sense because we're going to be cutting off our own economy and and hurting a lot of our own industries. And, and conflict is just really dangerous that way. And if we think about, you know, what goes on in the European Union, you know, in the last 50 years, it's almost um, – it, 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 inconceivable that two countries would be at war with each other. Now it would be just devastating to their economies, but Mm. you know, you go back a hundred years and it was almost constant that they were at war with each other. So (laughs) it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a dramatic change once you have that, that trade anchoring, you know, it makes you symbiotic. It makes you really care about what the other um, country is doing. And, and um, you know, even if you look at the U S and China, uh, you know, there there can be conflict and trade war, you know, trade wars in some ways and, and a lot of back and forth and, and bargaining, but the idea of military conflict um is would really be devastating and, and would just be um in neither country's interest.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it, it such an interesting thing. So, you know, the the gains from trade, uh specialization competitive advantage and, and and all of that on the positive side have been very clear you're pointing out here is that we can also reduce the negative side by you know through reducing the probability of a war. Yes, yeah having a high level of trade, right? Yeah.
1: And I think when you you know if you look at things like the Middle East conflict these days, um it's it's it it's something that when you look at it from an economic perspective, you think, look, you know, you can try and write treaties all you want, but until all those countries are trading with each other, they don't really have each other's interests in aligned, right, or, or in mind when when they're making decisions. And and I think you know, the the more the more you can start to cement trade between countries in the Middle East, the eventually you can get to a point where you can sign treaties that are really going to be respected by them. But now it's just sort of a piece of paper that says, okay, look, um, you know, this at this particular point in time, we're going to try and avoid conflict. But uh, it, the economics don't really drive it. And, and it's not very stable. And, you know, effectively now it's it's just a, a stalemate in terms of military strength. But, um, you know, you could imagine the Middle East erupting in different ways. And, and that's something that if we really want to solve that in the long term, you really need to get the country's interests aligned. And they may never agree, you know, religiously or politically, but at least if they're agreeing economically, that cements that relationship.
0: Right. Yeah. And so this could be a policy instrument, Matt, in terms of, you know, increasing trade to reduce the probability of war. I'm thinking and I know that you have done some work in this area. I'm thinking about South Asia Mm -hmm. and since 1950s, India and Pakistan have fought a lot of wars. I don't know how many. Uh, And um, I don't know much about this, but uh, I, I don't think there is substantial trade between the two countries. At least it used to be uh, before, uh, but there's a lot of trade between India and China now, and so as that trade relationship increases, and these two countries have always been you know so sort of um, uh, sort of against each other, so to speak mm-hmm. uh, from a policy perspective, increasing that trade is is uh, beneficial right yes
1: yes definitely and and you could imagine also you know for instance if if you increase the trade of both india and pakistan maybe they won't trade with each other but if they do both have large trading relationships with china then china has an interest in making sure that india and pakistan don't fight each other because if they go to war then whatever they're trading with either of those countries gets harder to get in and out or you know the, there can be disruptions in production and and demand and and so that those relationships even if they're not direct having strong partners that that trade heavily with both um, can be a means of, of avoiding conflict. And to some extent, that's what's going on in the Middle East these days, is you have countries that are trading with you know, both Israel and some of the Arab countries. And, and that you know c- c- makes it in their interest to make sure that they don't fight each other. Um, but the more you can grow trade of all, f- all forms between the partners and, and with other countries, then it makes it in everybody's interest to avoid that conflict.
0: Yeah, so so little bit cynically, uh, Matt. Um, I wondered, you know, one thing we are seeing is now there there are blocks forming, right? So EU is a block, uh, UK is uh, is departing from it. There is a US UK alliance. There is a there is a Pacific block. Um, and so, will we come into a situation that uh, these blocks, when they become sort of self-sufficient, so to speak, have less of an incentive uh, to uh, to not go to war against other? Blocks? Yeah, I, I
1: think you're correct in pointing out that that as we've moved over time, we're we're entering a phase where we're starting to move backwards a little bit in terms of of the way that globalization is taking place and. And for a while, we just saw more integration and more trade. And now we're seeing countries separate themselves and isolate themselves and go into trade wars. And the more we see blocks emerging where there's most of the trade going in within blocks and almost none going across blocks, you know, then you have to rely on military might and fear to to deter conflict rather than than economic interests and, and aligned uh, incentives and I think that then we move into a more dangerous phase and and you know I think the, the more that economy uh, you know economics is taken into account in long-term pol- politics where people say look you know we have to really think about these trade relationships not just as um, current economic drivers but as long-term political devices for ensuring peace and prosperity then you know we get to a, a healthier, um view of the world and hopefully uh, uh, maybe things will move back in the right direction.
0: Yeah so so free trade is is really a strategic instrument um not just not just economic gains uh but but really more about you know overall strategy of keeping peace and and doing that at least cost for all countries so to speak yeah
1: yeah, and it's, it's something that's easy to underappreciate because, you know, now after a few decades of relative peace, we tend to forget what the world was like before the Second World War, where, you know, we're constantly in turmoil and constantly, in, you know, um, burning resources and, and killing people and, and, you know, wasting a lot of the world. And I think that now, as we move into a a, a setting where things get more peaceful, people tend to forget the importance of trade and, and globalization for for avoiding conflict
0: yeah, and, and the beauty of this also Matt that when you have very robust trade and you have very internetwork uh, set of nations, you also reduce the probability of a madman you know coming to power and unleashing chaos uh, because the system's so interconnected that you know the economic stabilizers. Uh, would kick in rather than the political stabilizers we rely on. You know, it's 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 possible, and we have seen this happening last ten ten years. That you could have world leaders who don't really have much of a clue of how the world works. Right,
1: right, and and I, I guess you know part of it is making sure that the that at least their countries are are closely tied um, economically to other countries, and and that makes it in at least a, a lot of their populations interests and the business interests to make sure that the that even if you have a crazy leader they don't do crazy things um it's <laughs> it's hard to avoid sometimes but uh, you know that's that's one part that that I think is is always a a real danger in the in the world
0: right right i want to go into another paper another fascinating paper um uh, a more recent one entitled the friendship paradox and systematic biases in perceptions and social norms. Um, so you said the friendship paradox, uh, first noted by uh, Feld in 1991 refers to the fact that on average, people have strictly fewer friends than their friends have. <laughs> uh, I show that this oversampling of more popular people can lead people to perceive more engagement than exists in the overall population. So. So, so, so um, what's happening here is that, generally speaking, people gravitate toward those who have more friends or more popular, so to speak, and they, if I understand this correctly, Matt, they make their, uh, make their judgments based on what they see in that limited sample. And and sort of extend that to the population. Yeah, that,
1: that's exactly right. So I think you know normally what we have, a lot of our views of the world come from our friends and and acquaintances and family, and so we're looking around us and saying, you know, our perception of how people behave and what's normal behavior is is basically driven by what we see, and you know some of that comes through media and and even media is, distorts this in terms of the the who we see, but in, in terms of just our basic friendships. I think the easiest way to understand it is let's suppose that there's you know, a, a, a class of kids in school and there's one kid who's very popular and has 20 friends and there's another kid who has one friend. Um, yeah. Now, if you say, look, I'm one of these kids in the classroom, who's it more likely that I'm friends with? I'm much more likely to be friends. I'm 20 times more likely to be friends with the uh, the person who has 20 friends than the person who has one friend. And, and so that means that that person gets seen a lot more often and has a lot more influence in terms of determining people's beliefs. And we often don't account for it. We just sort of think that our friends are a random sample, you know, that they're picked. We, you know, we do realize that, that they're going to be limited in terms of the geography and maybe the demographics and so forth. They might be closer in my age and things like that, but we don't realize that they're not just random draws from that population. They tend to be the people who have the most connections and, and those people aren't yeah. typical people. They, they don't they behave differently systematically differently and and that's important yeah. to understand
0: yeah, so it also leads to polarization right matt so you know if if I'm uh talking to a group of people or I'm friendly with a group of people, um I take their views as universal views. And I, I tend to accept them um, because I just take that as an average expectation.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there's sort of, as you're pointing out, there's there's various distortions we have in, in what we hear. And, you know, if, if we look at the networks that we're involved in, uh, you know, the the connections of friends and so forth, there's the one distortion that these people who are our friends tend to be more popular individuals and they tend to have a lot more friends than the typical person in the population. And the other is, as you're saying, there's also splits in the network. So it, it, it's quite possible that, you know, if you look at, um, for instance, along um, political lines these days in the United States, um, people tend to be friends with people who have the same ideology as, as themselves. And and that happens for a lot of different reasons. It's not just by by choice, but also by the fact of where they live and what circumstances they're in and so forth. But you're going to tend to be friends with people who have the same kind of economic background, the same religious tendencies and all sorts of things. And we, we realize that, I mean, it's, it's something that's fairly obvious to any human, but it's not something that we often take into account when we are thinking about, you know, what's a normal behavior for, and what's a normal belief. What does everybody believe? Um, you know, I, I remember, the the day where Brexit vote was came out and um, I was talking with a, a bunch of friends who were from the UK. and they were all people who would, you know didn't want Brexit to happen. Um, but they were just simply amazed that that other people had a different you know that there was that larger pop, part of the population that would vote to, to exit. And it just shows you how separated the populations were and so forth. So you know, it, if you're in your own circle, you don't know anybody who has a certain belief. It's hard to believe that even if you see a poll that that's accurate. You think, oh, that must be biased. And I, I think we project our own little worlds um, too much onto the, the larger world.
0: Yeah. Uh, as you point out in the paper, it also has a lot of policy implications. Uh, for instance, you talk about um, overestimation of peer consumption of alcohol, cigarettes, and drugs, um, and, and so again, you are you have a very biased sample that you're basing your judgments on as a sort of societal average. You tend to overestimate all of these things, right? right? Um, well, I
1: mean, you overestimate some things. So, so for instance, alcohol consumption. You know, when when they look at, it, let's take a, a teenager and a um, say early high school or middle school, and they're looking at around their friends and trying to decide what should I be doing, what's normal, and and they're very heavily peer influenced. Um, the friendship paradox means that most of them are friends with the most popular kids, and so they they're going to tend to be overrepresented. And then you look at the the consumption, and the, you know, the, I guess one of the basic facts is um, if you look at a kid and uh, kids that have one more friend on average are something like 5 or 6% more likely to have tried drugs and alcohol by the time they become teenagers. And so they're you know experimenting with these things at earlier ages, doing it at higher levels. And that means that then when kids are looking around to their friends, they're not seeing the quiet ones who are, are not doing this. They're seeing the most popular ones who are doing it. And, and that gets amplified these days, you know. When you when you start thinking about social media, and everybody's following or paying attention on whatever it, it be, Instagram or, or WeChat or you know wh- whatever they happen to be um, posting things on, yeah. that you know th- that effect can be much much larger there, where the friendship paradox can be really amplified. And so they're they have a, a, a an impression that everybody else is doing things at a rate that's much higher than it might be in the actual population. And, and then that feeds off of itself so that it becomes more likely to happen. And, um, and, and so it's, you know, it, it's actually a, an important, I think, factor in, in understanding why people um, have distorted perceptions of, of a lot of behaviors.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you have done a lot of work in the networks, um, um, human networks, and and uh, and other type of things. And so, is this um, is the right way to think about this, Matt? That you know, if, if I think about a the network, the centrality, you know, the people who are more dominant. I don't know what if that's the right term in that network um will drive behavior of that yeah i mean you know
1: th- i think it depends a lot on the context as to both how we want to think about who's the the you know as you're printing dominant or say let's think of who's the most influential person or who's the most important person that can take different forms in different settings and is it is it just who can reach the most people or who is seen by the most people or is it somebody who's um, you know, a key gatekeeper between different groups who has information that nobody else has, you know, there, there's different ways to be very influential, but they, they all depend on on networks and depending on the circumstances, um, you know, you can you can think of different ways of measuring who's the most influential and, and who makes the biggest difference in, in a society.
0: Yeah, um, I wondered, Matt, uh, if you have done any work of this type inside companies. I remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was at a pharmaceutical company, a large pharmaceutical company, we looked at, you know, sort of the networks inside the company. And, um, you know, kind of the typical network analysis, you find, uh, you know, people who are very highly connected uh, with, uh, with others in the company. Uh, But um, curiously, we found that the people who have most influence in the organization are not those who are highly connected, at least cosmetically in a network analysis. Um, I don't know if you have if you've seen this uh, elsewhere or if that. Yes, certainly.
1: Um, So so actually when you there's a number of studies that people have done in going into companies and mapping out, first of all, what's sort of the official relationship of who who reports to whom or who's in communication with whom and then what's the actual communication network and that can be very different and then as as you're pointing out uh, you know just looking so one one naive thing that that we often do is just judge people by how well connected they are so if if you're on twitter and you have more followers that must be better Um, but what's really important you know think about twitter for instance if if you tweet it's not just that first set of people that you're tweeting to. It's the retweets and, and so forth that make a big difference. And so it's not just how right. many followers you have, but if you have followers that have a lot of followers, that can be more important. Having a few followers who have lots of followers can be more important than having lots of followers yourself. And, and, right? and, and so <laughs> you know, it multiplies out that way. And so you know, we've done studies. Um, we did a study in, in India and in Karnataka on trying to get information about a microfinance program out. And there we found that, that the kind of centrality that really matters is not just this raw number of people, but it's how well connected your friends are and so forth out to about a distance of three. Um, You know, so you can actually sort of map out how far out you have to go to, to really measure this. And, and that, you know, that can identify very different people than, um, than you would get by just counting friends.
0: Right, right, yeah. So sort sort of the pyramidal structure, uh, or how uh, how much it's sort of multiplying out as you go forward. Uh, but it's also, as you say, um, whether your network, the people that you are connected with, uh, are really engaged. Right. So going back to the Twitter example, you may have only a thousand followers but if those 1000 followers are really engaged looking at everything that you do and retweeting and all of that that is much more powerful network than perhaps you know having 10000 followers who you know who might right, not right, even right. look yeah. at most yeah exactly
1: of so so it's it's a combination of their engagement and their own networks in terms of how much they can reach once they do get engaged right and so you want to sort of if you if you want to be influential in, in some sort of social media, you want to both reach people, but you want to reach people who can reach others and get them excited about what you're doing or or what you have to say, and it's that that combination that's important, not just you know reaching lots of people.
0: Right, right, Matt. We'll take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll talk more about a couple of things. Thanks, Gil. Uh, how they form, how different they could be, the quality of networks, biases uh, people might take away from networks by observing maybe biased samples in networks and so on. Um, you have another paper that came out recently, uh, using gossips to spread information, theory and evidence from two randomized controlled trials. Uh, you ask, can we identify highly central individuals in a network without collecting network data? Simply by asking community members. So, 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 you ran this uh, these experiments in India. Uh, yes. So, so, how did that go?
1: Yeah. You know, it's um. So, you know, the the basic idea was, as we were talking about earlier, how do, how do you get information out? And there's a lot of programs in the world where you want to, you know, make sure that people are participating. So, getting vaccinated, or in this case, it was microcredit programs. And a vaccination um, trial, so there were different things that we were trying to get people to participate in, and and often you know they're, they're going to be responsive to hearing it from friends, family, or other people, and so you want to disseminate that information through the network, and the question is how do you find who's the right person? How do you find those central people that are well connected and so forth? Hmm. And if you know if you have a map of the network and you can see the engagement and so forth. You can you can identify those people who not only have you know are well connected in terms of numbers of friends but are well connected in terms of having friends that have friends and so forth yeah. um but the, the the hard part is if we just walk into a a place like if i go to stanford and i want to find that and i don't have that network how do i find who the right the right people are in different departments to to spread information about right. about something yeah. and so that was what we were after in that
0: um and, so, if so survey, so so you're asking, uh, uh I guess a, a sample of the community, right? Right. And, and so, so what what are the specific questions in the survey?
1: Yeah, I mean, so what we would do is we'd go in and ask people. Look, you know, we're 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 here. We want to spread information about a new program. Who should mm-hmm. we talk to? Who do you think would be a good person for spreading that information? Yeah. And and it's sort of interesting because, you know, we we could ask who's really central. In terms of a network, Um, it turns out that if if you ask people, suppose I give you a a pencil and paper and I tell you, um, look, I want you to draw the network of people around you. So I want you to, first of all, put yourself at the middle and then draw links to all of the friends that you have. And then I want you to also put further links out to who their friends are and and you know tell me which of your friends are friends with each other and so forth so i want you to draw that it it turns out people are really bad at doing that um (laughs) you know know, they they get their own friends you you can sort of name who your own friends are but but figuring out who's you know what which of them are actually friends with each other and then who their friends are past you and so forth it's it's remarkably um remarkable how bad people are at doing that and, and so one thing we, we were thinking about is if we go into the village, how, how are we going to be able to, you know, if we just ask people who's central, how are they going to know that? Yeah. Um, but it turns out that, that knowing who's central in the village can be very different than being able to draw the network. Right. So they, they don't have to be able to draw the network to figure out who's the person that's going to be able to reach the most people directly or indirectly. But, um, and, and part of it is just that, Know, the, the kind of theory that we have about why it works is um, you're, you're constantly hearing things about people. And, you know, we call it gossip, right? I mean, you're hearing things good or bad about other individuals. And for news to reach you from somebody, um, it has to be that there's a, a connection that, that gets to you from those, from those people. And the people who are able to reach the most people are going to be the people that are known to the most people through the network. And and so actually, just asking people, it turns out they, they do a remarkably good job at picking out the most central and the best broadcasters uh, of of information in the, in their in their communities.
0: Right, and I would imagine the the, the network by which bad 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 news travels would be quite different from good news network.
1: Yeah, yeah, actually. Um, so we, that's something we haven't tested. So we, we've, we've been yeah. doing it just about particular, you know, good news kinds of things. But you're right, it, it could be that, that, you know, the kind of, of network you want to spread one type of information could be very different from the type of network that you want to spread different types of information. And, and you know, some people might be better at spreading new rumors, other people might be better at spreading, you know, good advice. Um, and those two, those people could be very different.
0: Yeah, I mean, the problem there is good news uh, follows uh, laws of physics. Bad news can travel faster than light. Yes. Sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Indeed.
0: <laughs> or yeah. if, if, we did uh, something similar, you know, the pharmaceutical company that I mentioned. So, the question one question we asked inside the company to sort of identify the the highest influence uh, influencing people is this is the question that, you know, if you have a doubt uh, about you know, in this case, it's some sort of a scientific question. Uh, if you have a doubt, not, not a specialized scientific question, but a general doubt, who do you go uh, first? Mm-hmm. to? you know, ask, ask about that? And uh, you can see if you just count the frequency of that people mentioned, uh, and they're not high up in the organization, in the, in the organizational hierarchy, you can pick them out. Uh, but in the network hierarchy, they are highly prominent.
1: Right, right, uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I think you know it's it's um, it's interesting because I think it, as you're pointing out, there there can be two things that are sort of going on at the same time. One is how well connected these people are and how many people they reach, but there's also some level of trust in in yeah. whether whether this is a person that you would go to. Uh, you know, for, for particular kinds of information. And there was actually a, a study I did with some um, psychologists at, at Stanford, Jamil Zaki and, and part of his group. And we found that, that um, people's networks, we were asked two different types of questions. Who would you go out with, you know, to have fun, to party, to make you feel good? And then who do you go to when you have a real problem that you want to confide in? And those networks, that second network is much less dense as fewer people that you would talk to. And, and that network has many fewer links and connections in it overall. And But it, it also has a completely different set of people who are central, right? So the, the people who are central in one, um, you know, tend to be outgoing and, and uh, you know, uh, sort of extroverted people. And then the other tend to be empathetic um and and often less central in the in sort of the good news network so you can imagine you know these are very different types of of things that you're looking for um and the the people you turn to could ha- could have very different characteristics in different situations
0: right right yeah i mean this has some um real um policy implications here in a in a very topical sense right so uh, to get the herd immunity the world has to get 5.5 6 billion people uh vaccinated and there is a lot of information and misinformation out there uh about vaccinations and other things and so so one larger question and i, I don't know you know if it's a who or other organizations uh would be to, to figure out how to get the word out in the most efficient fashion,
1: right? Right. I think you know there's, um, you know, vaccinations are pr- particularly interesting example since there've been, you know, historically um, various f- forms of misinformation and disinformation that have circulated, and and you know there are, in, in some particular situations, when people have strong allergies or there's, uh, you know, there can be some particular side effects that are there so there are some dangers that sometimes get blown out of proportion and and it's it's a very dangerous situation because vaccinations are so vital to protecting the whole population not just the individuals and 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 so that's a particularly you know poignant situation where you not only want to get information out about a program but you want that you know people to believe in the program and um and so that's uh you know it's it's a tricky one and and you know right now with the coronavirus situation and covid-19 it's a an interesting one because it's a newer vaccine so there's less information about it so there you know people can have doubts uh, about its yeah. long-term side effects and so that makes it even a harder situation than than a normal one
0: yeah and then goes to what you mentioned uh trust right so so, so, in this control trial in india are are there um you know are there heuristics that are generalizable in a situation like this that you could utilize
1: yeah, I mean you know what we found was that the the most powerful combination was a combination of of who you trusted and who were who you thought was um really well connected and if you got you know overlaps so that people would name somebody who they thought. With somebody they could trust and and talk to and believe in, that combination with somebody who's well connected in the network um, dramatically increased the spread of information through the network, and uh, you know the eventual participation in the vaccination programs that we were working with, and and, so, and that's a pretty simple recipe, right? It's it's not that complex. It's just you're looking for people who are well-connected and, and well-connected in this iterative sense that they have friends who have friends and so forth. And and then also people who um, have some standing in the population that, so that people trust what they say. And that combination of engagement and reach, um, you know, makes a big difference, a significant difference.
0: Yeah. And so um, uh, I'm looking at the paper. So 521 villages, so this is a fairly large, uh, study so trust in this context is local trust right so if, if x goes to y uh, because x trusts y that trust is built up over time by a uh, number of transactions between x and y i would imagine right
1: right right and and um you know this was a large scale study as you point out five hundred and twenty one villages and this was so was a, a study I did with Abhijit Banerjee, uh, Arun Sikar and Esther Duflo. And so, you know, getting buy-in from a government and getting able to, to work with this large uh, a setting was important. But then as you're pointing out, the, one of the useful parts for, for doing a scientific study like this is that you want to have a pretty good handle on what the networks look like so that we can measure them as scientists and then see what's happening. And if you do that, in in small villages in India, then you have a pretty closed setting where, where they're not interacting that much outside the village. If you try and do that in New York City, it just becomes one giant, you know, network. It's it it doesn't it's hard to separate out. And and so yeah. it's 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 a lot easier when you've got um, separate entities that you can measure and and see. Um, and and then you know, those people are spending most of their time inside these, these smaller worlds. One, one thing that I found amazing, you know, from our data was how disconnected people can be even inside these small villages, right? So you take you know, a typical village that we would work with would have a, an order of a, of a thousand people, maybe 200 households. A typical household only interacted with 15 other households on a regular basis. Right. So even though they're in a village with just a couple hundred households, um, it, it wasn't as if they were, you know, knew all of them and were friends with all of them. They could be remarkably ignorant about other households within their, uh, you know, in their own rural village. Um So there's still, in these, even in these small communities, there were, there were strong splits in the network.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know much about this, Matt, but... um You know, it might be that in uh, in a remote village in a developing country, we find uh, sort of disintegrated, uh, not disintegrated, but disconnected um, people. We might find similar things in a large city, right? Um, You know, if you if you're living on top of a a multi-story building, uh, in a condominium-type building, uh, perhaps you are not really, you know, you don't. Very big network. We, you know, know the people on the floor and and so on. So I wondered if if we are as we look forward uh, into cities becoming bigger and bigger cities, our sort of personal networks. Uh, do you see that shrinking?
1: I think you know it's interesting. I think when we look at at tech, technology and how it's changing the way people are connected, and urbanization, you know that that's a question. If you go back, you know, in sociology. Um, almost a century ago, there was already a question of as the world urbanizes and people move out of these rural settings where they're, you know, really helping each other. And part of that, when they went to the big city, would that mean that that all our networks would disappear? And, and, um, and then, you know, Robert Putnam had a book, Bowling Alone, and a series of studies that seems to suggest that this, you know, that there would be less tight communities in this kind of world. Um, I, I think when you look overall, the networks evolve and it, they evolve in complex ways. And it's, it's not quite as easy as we would imagine to just say that everything's going to disintegrate. It's sort of, you know, you have new connections, you have different kinds of connections. Your connections through your workplace become more important or your school or your um, family. And, and so there's different types of connections. And technology now means that you can be in pretty constant contact with people who might live at a greater distance from you, but you know are, are, you're still well connected to and and I think you know that's something that's changing, and we don't really have the full understanding of yet what, what the ultimate um, you know whether people are going to end up being more isolated or, or more connected um,
0: yeah and and what your work points out uh, is that uh, it has to be studied deeply. And understood by policymakers uh, as well, because if you're going to, again going back to COVID nineteen, if we want to get the vaccination program implemented to a high level, it will require um, influencers uh, reaching the influencers first, re- designing, uh, you know, sort of a program that provides information in a in a trusting way and so on, right? Without that, all the mechanics uh is not going to going to work right
1: right and you know th- there'll be some settings where the mechanics work pretty well where you know you're going into a hospital and it's it's necessary for the doctors and nurses to be vaccinated and, and front line workers yeah. and so forth. but then as you get down you know as um as we need to get herd immunity and we need to get say two thirds of the world vaccinated, we have to get to you know small remote villages and all kinds of places um in, in places that don't believe in vaccines and uh, and, and we have to get them vaccinated. And, and, and that, I think, you know, in the longer run to make sure that the, the world um, has immunity, and not just from COVID-19, but from measles and from all kinds of things and, and from future pandemics, which we see are, are probably not going to be as rare as we imagined. Um, you know, yeah. that, that, that's, that becomes essential. And, and getting that news out and getting it out in a reliable way, in a trusted way, um, becomes more vital. And, you know, I think nowadays the, you know, we're sort of in a the wild west of the social media age where it's possible yeah. for people to get news from all kinds of sources and some are trusted and some aren't and they can look similar to each other and it, it's very difficult for people to sort out.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's information overload. Um, ironically, maybe... You know, uh, we are we are reaching a point that you need a machine to actually tell you if the if, uh, if, if the news is yeah, right yeah. or not. Uh, I think that, you know that
1: that actually one one thing I think is sort of dangerous about as we were talking about you know the connections we make and so forth. A, a lot more of our interactions are now mediated by algorithms that are, you know, parts of this of social media platforms, and and they're not you know they're they're generally designed. Um, to to serve us and to help us, but they can be designed in ways, you know, for instance, the friendship paradox we were talking about before, you know, social media wants to show you the most popular stuff. And, and so that, that, you know, you, you keep amp, then that feeds on itself and and makes those people even more popular. And, and um, you know, that, that kind of distortion is sort of built into the way that the programs work. Um
0: yeah, that that is a that's a really interesting thing. So going back to the friendship paradox, the problem there is you have a bias sample um, that you're looking at. So you have a biased data, you average it, and you get an expectation, and you say that is the average expectation of the population. And and that's where the trouble starts. So so do you see there is a way that Perhaps social networks could mediate that that problem I, I'm yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think
1: there's sort of two ways that they can be done and and they're both not easy, so one is just making people more aware of the distortions that are in their lives and being constantly yeah. aware of things. so when I get news, you know um where did that news come from or where I hear a rumor? How can I trace that back? How can I check whether or not it came from a trusted source? If I see somebody doing something, should I really believe that that's normal behavior and typical of most people? So, you know, educating people on that and especially, um, you know, teens and people who are more influenced by by their surroundings. And then the second would be actually trying to help people's networks reach out more broadly and be more diverse. And that one I think is even more challenging because it's, it's, it's hard. You know, if you give people, imagine I'm a social media platform and I give people five different things in their news feed, they're going to tend to click on the ones that you know, appeal to them the most, which might already be something from somebody who's their close friend or something, and getting them to click on something that is from somebody that they don't know or don't know as well Which might have information that they haven't already heard or isn't an echo of what they're hearing already um it's harder to get them to 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 like that or to look at it or to believe it and and so it's not easy to just diversify these things um it's i think it's a real challenge
0: yeah yeah yeah. i mean this might be a long-term um issue for social media so I think that attempts to mediate the the problems on social media appears to be very tactical and not that effective, Um, you know, assigning some sort of truth index uh, to information. Uh, But there's a more underlying problem, as you're pointing out, which is um, there is a bias selection problem by the user and that user is going to continue to become more and more biased right, right. <laughs> over time uh once you start there is no stopping stopping it at the current process so the question i think for social media is if they can come up with technologies or processes that could reverse that in some way i don't know if there's yeah an
1: and i think it's also exacerbated by the fact that the social media are in, in competition with each other right so you know if I'm a social media platform and I, I try to offer people more diverse news feeds and and try to get them to look at things that they might not like or might not listen to or and so forth, then they might just go to another site that gives them what they do like. <laughs> and right. And so so it's it's really hard for any particular platform to to start saying, look, we're gonna try and deliberately diversify things and because it's gonna lower the engagement and and it's easier just to say, look, we'll give them what they like and what they are going to click on and, and we'll have the algorithm just figure out what they're going to click on and, and try and present that to them and do more of that. And, and, then, and then there's this feedback effect. And, and so it's, it's hard to break out of. And the fact that these, these are you know, competing with each other makes it even more of a problem.
0: Right. Yeah, I want to jump into another paper, uh, Matt, uh, which has just came out. Um, very interesting the role of referrals in immobility, inequality, and inefficiency in labor markets. Uh, you, you say that we study the consequences of job markets' heavy reliance on referrals. Referrals screen candidates and lead to better matches and increased productivity, but disadvantaged job seekers who have few or no connections. To employed workers, leading to increased inequality. So, so we see this all the time, right? Um, people who get jobs are those who are connected, uh, connected with those who have yeah, right. jobs. <laughs> uh, and so, so if if your initial conditions are not good, uh, you can't really break that. You are you're sort of in a in a different bucket, so to speak. Um, but what always puzzled me, Matt, in this context, you know, I I, I had a book in uh, in 2009 called Flexibility, where I argued that um, the way that we think about companies today, people go out and hire employees, and so on and so forth, uh, is sort of antiquated, um, because I argued maybe prematurely that companies won't exist by 2020. <laughs> <laughs> but companies do exist, uh, and I, I thought you know it'd be more self-selection to organize a company in the future. In other words, an employee self-selects himself and herself uh, to a company, and the company doesn't hire that person. Um, and so, this, this problem that you're you're pointing out here, which is the the people who get interviews, so to speak. Are already pre-selected because of their connectivity, and and the rest get disadvantaged. Yes, yeah, and
1: and I think you know that it's it's easy to underestimate. You know, we all have this I- idea, which is correct, that connections matter in terms of you know getting ahead in the world. But it's it's easy to underestimate how how valuable that is, and and you know, in that paper with Lucas Bolt and Nicola Morlico, what we do is we investigate the dynamics of this and the implications of it for inequality and, and how it can sort of trap groups that, you know, if, if I don't have many informed uh, employed friends, then I don't get information about jobs and and I don't get opportunities. And then that feeds on itself. And and it's a, you know, it's a, a, a tough situation and, and here the social structure really makes a big difference um, in, in understanding inequality. And I think that's, yeah, I I think it's, you know, on the one level it's it's fairly obvious because we know that you know job connections are important, but uh, on the other level I think it gives us a very different perspective of what kinds of policies we need to overcome inequality, and it's not just you know taxes and we're going to move some money around, it's that we need to overcome these social blockers that are affecting who has those opportunities and who doesn't, and if we don't do that we're just being you know. Time after time we're just going to have to keep you know pumping money into these systems and and rearranging redistributing things and and it it, it long term you have to understand these kinds of you know the the implications of this to really design good long term policies
0: yeah it's a it's a really complex issue so if it is let's say discrimination um then you can you can show that discrimination is Shareholder value uh value destroying um policy for a company. So unless the company is suffering some suffering from principal agent issues, the, the manager of the firm will optimize or maximize shareholder value, discrimination shouldn't exist, or maybe it should go away over time. But this is a slightly different problem, isn't it? The company is actually gaining, or at least it perceives it's gaining, uh, by selecting those. Uh, who are referred by, who, uh, by those who are already in the company, or or, or those they know are good uh, good workers, or whatever right. the case may be. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, oh. I think that's exactly right, and and it, it and companies do benefit. So there's a, a a number of studies that have looked at sort of, you know, the productivity of workers and the innovativeness and how long workers stay, from the ones that you get via hired via connections and the ones you hired via some open application process and interview process. And, and the ones that you get through the connections tend to, to have, you know, better performance and on a number of different dimensions. And, you know, that happens partly because of this fact that, that we talked about earlier, which is known as homophily, the fact that people tend to be um, friends with people who look very similar to themselves. So if you go to your best workers and you say, look, I want to hire somebody who's just like you. Um, the easiest way to find somebody just like them is to look at their friends who tend to be very similar to them. And, you know, and and what you're looking for in a person isn't necessarily, you know, somebody who's the, um, you know, uh, most talented at something, but somebody who's going to be willing to work those hours and be reliable and to have certain demographic characteristics in terms of their, um, you know, the uh, number of hours and the wages they're willing to work for and, whether this is a good job match for them and so forth. And and so your existing workers are great ways to find people who are very similar to them. But then it means that, you know, that then firms yeah. rely on this and then you never get outside of that little network,
0: right? Yeah, it's, it's a bit counterintuitive for me, uh, Matt. You know, in an innovation-driven economy, uh, cloning employees is probably... Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, That's definitely so. So, I guess there's a there's a trade-off here in terms of whether or not I want somebody who is going to be part of an innovative team in terms of developing and so forth. And you could imagine if I, you know, if I'm trying to build a team that's doing, uh, doing things for me, I want a diverse perspective. But if I if I'm just looking to hire people who are going to show up, do the job, and be reliable. Um, then my own current employees are the best, you know, match in, in terms of doing that. And so often firms are looking to their own employees. And even when they look for diversity, they'll often go through, you know, they'll find people who look superficially diverse, but might even be very similar to the people that they uh, mm-hmm. or, already have in terms of, say, education and and background and, you know, where they went to college or wherever, um, high school and so forth and so um you know they they rely heavily on these things but you're right that you know there is some trade-off in terms of diversity that this has as as well so it has negative effects in terms of that and it has negative effects in terms of inequality
0: yeah so so you are you are there in silicon valley i am out here in uh, in the northeast Uh, Do you see a difference, Um, you know, uh, how a Silicon Valley firm thinks or, you know, some investment bank in New York? Um, Not
1: necessarily. I think, you know, often take an example of uh, startups, which, you know, there's lots of them in the Silicon Valley. And, you know, if you're trying to hire a a really good coder to do something in particular for your company, you, you can go out and it's easy to get lots and lots of people to apply and w- who will have credentials and, and coding in this particular language or whatever it might be, that doesn't guarantee that they're going to be able to do the job for you. Right. Um, but if you have a coder who knows exactly what's involved and you say, look, give me a recommendation of somebody who you know can do this job, um, then they're going to find somebody for you that, that, you know, they know exactly what's entailed in this and, and have other people that probably were um, either friends from college or, or other people that they know who who code and can do it for you, and and that's true in the Silicon Valley. It's also true in the Northeast. It could be true if I'm you know trying to do this at a financial firm and I want to look for an analyst and I want to say, look, you know, is there somebody else who could do an, the same kind of financial analysis you're doing? Um, that that that's a very particular job, but it, it's not somebody you can just hire off the street for. And and that's true in a lot of different settings. And and so I think that firms all over the world rely on this. Um,
0: yeah. yeah, you you have some really interesting policy ideas in the paper too. Um, that you know, one of them, um, I, I I don't have it in front of me, but um, rather than very prescriptive affirmative action type uh, type uh, policy, uh, what you're suggesting is more market based policy, right? So if you pool uh, applicants. Uh, if I understand this correctly, Matt, and if the if the if the firm is selecting at random or something like that, you you could still get much much better outcomes um, without any sort of prescription. Yeah, I mean, I, you
1: policy. know, part of it is is what you need to do is break the strength of the network, and and so getting yeah. the firms to be hiring even at random from the population will start to break that out. Um, and and part of the you know the important aspects of this is that if if there is a group that's underrepresented um once they start getting their foot in the door then that feeds on itself and they can start giving recommendations to their friends and so forth and so it can grow outward and so these things have multiplier effects so the, once you start breaking the effect of the network which can be costly in the short run because now firms are getting worse matches in the short run but even if they hire people at random you know that that can propagate itself through the next generations and sort of improve the overall networks and how things are spread through the society and reduce the inequality. Yeah, yeah.
0: And and as you say, you know, it, it affects a lot of things like equality, mobility, productivity. Uh, and it's a vicious circle. You can break out of it. And so so in conclusion, Matt, you know, if you, I don't know uh, whether you can do anything on a kind of a legislative basis, but if you were to Think about, you know, some sort of legislative policy change. But What's I think, that, you know, there's,
1: there's um, several things you can do that, that we um, sort of point out. One, one is you, you want to make the labor markets um, as, as frictionless as possible in the sense that if I do hire somebody and they don't work out, then um, make it easy for me to hire somebody else. And, and that allows me to go out and then search for people more generally in the population and not fear that I'm going to be stuck with somebody, you know, forever um, just because I hired them and it didn't happen to work out. So, it, you know, part of the reason companies rely on the connections is because they're sure, you know, they, they have more confidence in the people they're going to hire through that and they don't want to hire somebody that, and take a chance on somebody that they might get stuck with for a long time so so that's one thing that can be done but another thing that can be done is just try to break that information barrier and the more that we have policies that allow firms to get to know workers out there in in the wild so to speak um you know either through uh internships some some sub- subsidized internships where people from the population that don't have connections get a chance to work for a company for a few months a company gets to know them, they get to know the company. Um, anything you can do to certify more accurately the value of the of the skills that the workers have to make it easier for companies to be able to see people outside of their connections and see and evaluate those workers. So it's it's really all about that information friction and and you know making it possible for, for firms to break out of this sort of vicious circle where they're hiring from the same pools and and through the same connections.
0: Yeah, just one one more quick thing, Matt. So uh, we know that the labor market is much um, much more constrained uh, in the EU compared compared to the US. So uh, you know it's a lot more difficult to fire an employee in the EU, if I understand them, understand their policies correctly. So do you see this problem sort of exasperating? Yeah, so so it's in an interesting
1: point is is that there, I think that, that you know, th- this suggests that in c- countries like uh, a lot in the EU that have more restrictions on hiring and firing workers, um, that's going to make these problems more acute. And that is correct, I think. When you look at the employment rates among new college graduates, they tend to be lower in a lot of the countries that have the strictest labor laws because, you know, firms don't want to just hire somebody and take a chance on it because they might be having to hold that worker for the next, you know, two, four, five years. Um, and, and that makes it much more dangerous for them to hire these people that they don't have connections to. And, and so, you know, it makes it so it's, it's one way of making sure that, that things, you know, you've got a safety net there by making sure that people can't be fired but at the same time, it can actually exacerbate the inequality, and and so you you sort of need to right. to balance those two things against each other.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the irony. So strict labor laws, um, perhaps uh, perhaps created uh, to, um, <laughs> to to support labor, uh, ultimately, as you say, uh, result in high levels yeah, of inequality in the in society. And and once you get there, um, as you say, once you get there, it's it's really difficult to reverse it because you are sort of yeah, in a Yeah, And then, then it becomes there,
1: more right? important to somehow um you know allow firms to be able to hire people or to have internships, to get to know people in the broader population and to break out of those networks. Yeah,
0: yeah. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for spending time with me, man. Well, it's yeah. been a lot of fun. Thanks, thanks, Gil. Great. I take care. Thank you.